With ghosts in my periphery, I keep my focus ahead. Born hopeless, the brokers, fighting swarms of locusts in bed. See, I wrote this one dead, and it resuscitated my breath in hopes I spit it loud enough to resonate in your chest. My girl's telling me to quit spitting about demons and blood. I said, you just remain my angel. Hush my screaming with love. I'm fiending for drugs in the form of over three-minute hugs that suffocate till I'm exhaling crows and breathing in doves. When most people think about poets, we think of, you know, sort of people who are struggling to get by, scribbling notes madly on pieces of paper, working three different jobs. You may even have sort of like the old beat generation view of wraparound shades and a a hat turned backwards. Today's guest, Sekou Andrews, paints a very different picture of a modern day poet, somebody who came out of a world where he was obsessed with music and hip hop and lyrics. And one day took the stage and realized that there was a different way to share what was on his mind, his ideas, his stories. And this started a really powerful deep dive into poetry. But he didn't just stop there. He decided that poetry needed to grace the larger stages, the larger stages of keynotes in business and life. And he wanted to turn it into a really substantial way to earn a living and make a really big difference. We explored that journey and listen to some really powerful words in this week's conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So we're hanging out in New York City right now. And I was trying to remember where we first met. And I think it was, I don't know if you remember, but I think it was, we were both speaking at this kind of small impromptu gig in a trailer in Vegas. Superhero you. Is that that's what it was, wasn't Superhero it? Superhero you. Yeah. And like you took the stage there and my mind melted the moment you opened your mouth. I was like, I I gotta know more about this guy, like what he's out to. That's good. And that's a that's a horrible description of superhero you too. Like, <laughs> right. a, no, it's actually quick, like a really cool quick would be, thing. Like, it's it like would be good, appalled. Right. It's a good friend of both of us. It's an amazing event, but there was just like this like spontaneous like, like a pop-up version of that's it. That's right. And, uh, yeah, it was. This, like it's like a makeshift stage. Yeah. You know? It was. It was like the almost like a part external but part internal to Zappos yeah, version right. of Superhero You in downtown. Yeah, Vegas. it's so like it we was had really Tony cool. Shea and yeah. his crew there, so we're kind of like doing this exclusive little thing. So yeah. it was really cool. With it was like great. A great energy there, but yeah. So you took the stage, and I had no idea who you were before this because I literally I kind of just jumped. Jim's like, you have to be here. I jumped yeah. on like like Jim normally does. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and you opened your mouth, and I was just blown away because i had no idea what to expect i didn't know sort of like where you came from and all this stuff and i was like wow this is just incredible and i remember we talked a little bit after that and then i've kind of been following what you've been up to for the last number of years so um so it's awesome to be able to hang out with you and absolutely uh, and jam a little bit i want to take a step back in time so right now you basically like travel the world blowing people's minds on stage and, and we'll talk about how Okay. Uh, we'll get there. <laughs> and it's around poetry. Yeah. But you're not talking to, as a general rule, audiences of poets. You're talking to like major <laughs> corporations and organizations yeah. and stuff like that. Were you the, like the poet laureate toddler? <laughs> Where did that, like, where's this come from? Oh, man. Well, you know, it's funny because I really am the apple like right next to the tree. Yeah. In the sense that if you think about my work, it is the sort of combination of art, education, and entrepreneurship. And both of my parents were artists. Mom was a dancer, choreographer. Mm. Pops is a painter, you know, visual artist. Both of them were educators, college professors. 
and both of them were entrepreneurs and began their own businesses. And so, you know, I really just got all of that. But none of them on the poetry side, like that really came from, I think my love of words came when I kind of fell in love with hip hop. You huh. know? And I discovered hip hop and acting at the same time and began to pursue music, both songwriting, lyric writing, performing, producing all of that. And then I'm also acting in theater and chasing film and so forth at the same time, like in middle school, you know, hmm. and so it's pretty um, young. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but I think the creativity was always nurtured in me because my parents were artists. The education was always nurtured in me. It was like, you know, you're going to go to college. Like, you can do this play. Like, when I was in D.C., I went to a school of the arts, Duke Ellington School of the Arts, for the first year, mm. which I just learned. that I just Someone just told me that Duke Ellington closed, which kind of broke my heart. Uh. But, uh, I mean, lots of cats came out of there. Michelle and Cello and Dave Chappelle and, like, lots of, you know, brilliant folks came out of that school. But I went there for one year, and my, and at the time, D.C. ranked, like, 50th in the nation for public schools. Right. So my mom was like, okay, love the arts, but you can go do plays at this college prep school. You know, So I ended up going to Georgetown Day to finish up. So it was that kind of you know real balance. And then yeah. the same thing with entrepreneurship. It was like, yeah, you know, go get a job. I was encouraged to sort of, you know, your mom recognizes that you have the gift of gab and she doesn't say go be a poet. She says go be an attorney, you know. So <laughs> I was on the law school track. But at the same time, as I began to pursue my own path, it was very encouraged because she understood it. So really, I think it, it really came from them. And then it was just nurtured in me to sort of look for the possibilities. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. It, it's funny. Like I, I've had the opportunity to sit down with a lot of just beautiful creators and entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and makers. And I've often wondered, you know, what's the dynamic with the parents? You know, like, do you come from really entrepreneurial and like hyper-creative parents? And I, I kind of figured that that would be a pretty common pattern, but it's not necessarily yeah. like a lot of big time, like creatives and artists and entrepreneurs come from like mm -hmm. kind of very buttoned down mainstream, you know, like work a day parents who like didn't have an entrepreneurial bent in there. So it's yeah. kind of interesting to see that. Yeah. It's like, you know, they, I hear that a lot, you know, like even with your whether it's your career blueprint or, you know, like your money blueprint, you know, you read, I'll read a lot of books that just talk about like, you know, you're either pursuing exactly what your parents sort of how, how they defined money, how they yeah. define career, or you're literally like, you know, engaged in the exact opposite, rejecting it and say, I want nothing to do with that. And I want to be the exact opposite. And both of them can lead you to this place. Yeah. It's almost like you're one of the extremes, but yeah. not all that often, just kind of like in yeah, the middle, that's like right. washing around. So you're jamming on all this stuff, like back in middle school and then through high school and then keeping it going into college, it sounds like. But what did you actually study in college? Sociology. What was behind that? I was a social major and it was strategy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, break it down. It was... I was on the law school track. I yeah. thought I was going to law school. You don't, you know, unlike med school, you don't necessarily have to major in one particular right, thing yeah. for law school. It's more about the GPA and so forth. So I said, well, let me just major in something that I enjoy so that I can keep my GPA up, right. you know, and I liked sociology. I love people. And of course, that comes into my work now as well. Um, and just looking at those systems and cultures and so forth. So it was just, let me do, you know, I mean, I, if you think about it, it's all in alignment still with who I am because even then it was, let me go to my passion place. Let mm -hmm. me go to the thing that pleases me. Let me go to that thing that I enjoy doing with my life. And if I can make a living, quote unquote, at that point, it was just, I wasn't going to make a living as a sociologist, but it was an end to a means, you know, right. or means to an end. And so, you know, it was still that sort of strategy keeping me in my passion place. And I just ended up not doing either. Right. During that time, were you still acting and mm -hmm. involved in hip hop? And like, where's the transition to 
poetry yeah, come right. into this. Exactly. I mean, although you, you know, I guess there's a strong argument that hip hop is poetry, right? Of course. But where does it? Where do you start to move more to sort of like what you know the outside world would consider? So, was pursuing music and acting through middle school, through high school, through college began to, you know, I started directing, writing some plays, getting those put up in high school, then in college um, out in LA. I was originally a Berkeley baby, so I went mm-hmm. from Berkeley to DC for middle school and high school and then came out to uh, Pitzer College and was you know, out in LA in the Claremont Colleges and pursued music through that. I was constantly performing. I was constantly, you know, on stage taking acting classes. Um, I started to learn studio production there. I was constantly producing my demos. And then as I started to chase the record industry and and chasing Hollywood, I just found myself having more opportunities pop up in music. So I began to pursue hip hop a lot more heavily. Uh, My pops passed right before I graduated from college and I ended up taking some of the benefit money that I got and using that to fund my studio. So I always credit my pops as like, you know, the biggest contributor to to my musical career. And I, I, you know, got myself on a, a home studio set up and just began to pursue the hell out of music. And I found myself... You know, there was this pattern that emerged of like record executives that were like, dude, I love your lyrics. Mm. Like... Like I listen to this every day on on you know on my way to work, and I, I know it all by heart. I share it with the homies, but it wasn't the formula, you know, the hip hop yeah. formula enough to sell it next to the to sell it to the man next to the man next to the man, and you know it wasn't bling and shoot him up and hose and you know the whole bit. So I was just like, all right, well, I'm not that. You know, and so let me try to do it independently. Yeah, because you got to speak your truth no matter what right. the industry is telling you is selling now. That's right. Yeah. You know, and I just was like, that's not my truth. And I'm not, and I could do that in the same way that I can act. You know, I can play a character, right. which is a lot, what a lot of those cats are doing anyway. But I was like, that's not my path. So let me do it independently. You know, so that was when the entrepreneur kicked in and I started to, I, I started my record label, Blind Faith Records. And um, began to just pursue the independent route. And that led me to open mics to build a fan base for my music. Uh. And so as I started to go to these poetry open mics, I would a lot of MCs would deliver their, their raps like a rapper, like they were still locked into the beat. And I found myself going, that's such a shame. Because a lot of times, I can't understand what you're saying a lot of times because you're, you're stuck to the cadence of the, of the beat, you know? Yeah. Now you're free from that. So why not deliver it in a way where you let your word shine? And so I would deliver a lot of my hip stu- hip hop stuff, spoken word style. What would be like a short example, sort of like to the beat style, and then like so what would be a short example of breaking from an that? An example would be, with ghosts in my periphery, I keep my focus ahead. Born hopeless, the brokest, fighting swarms of locusts in bed. I wrote this one dead, and it resuscitated my breath in hopes I spit it loud enough to resonate in your chest. My girl telling me to quit spitting about demons and blood. I said, you just remain my angel. Hush my screaming with love. I'm fiending for drugs in the form of over three-minute hugs that suffocate till I'm exhaling crows and breathing in doves. Right? So that would be like Right, so it's like syncopated to the beat. Right. Yeah. Like as if the beat is still under. Yeah, yeah. So I would get up there and go, with ghosts in my periphery, I keep my focus ahead. Born hopeless, the brokers. Fighting swarms of locusts in bed. See, I wrote this one dead. And it resuscitated my breath in hopes I spit it loud enough to resonate in your chest. My girl's telling me to quit spitting about demons and blood. I said, you just remain my angel. Hush my screaming with love. I'm fiending for drugs in the form of over three minute hugs that suffocate till I'm exhaling crows and breathing in doves. So, so that was the difference. So I'm going to tell you what my like, experience of those two were. Uh-huh. First one, I'm like kind of just got bopping along to the beat. Right. My head is like, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just this like a natural groove that takes over my body. The second time he did it, I just got chills. Yeah, there's something like there was it was it landed with so much more emotion to me, which is interesting. And those chills are what ultimately made me fall in love with spoken word. Uh, so somewhere along that way, as I was going to these open mics to build a fan base for my music, one email list at a time, I fell in love with spoken word poetry, and I found myself going, I love being appreciated for my words, being able to share my words with people. And I love that it, that now that they're free from having to worry about the beat, the remix, who's on the hook, all the politics of the record industry, and the audiences are just like, I want more of that. That got good to me. Hmm. You know, so that was really that transition. But then it's like, well, now what the hell do I do with that? I mean, yeah, because I'm know, going from the multi-billion-dollar music industry <laughs> right. to trying to do poetry. Like, we don't even have a multi-thousand-dollar industry. Right. You know, there a whole lot of like examples of you know, like, that's right. Professional poets earning family-worthy livings. Out that's there right. In the world. Yeah. So it was very much the beginning of when the model's not out there, you have to create it yourself. Right. But in your mind, as you're doing it in the background, you're still simultaneously like, pursuing two roads. You're still in school. You're getting your social degree in the background. You're still like, the real job is going to be like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Sort of. So, no. <laughs> so, uh, in the, during this time, when we last left our hero, and he was you know on the law school track, I started working in law firms post-college. So, this is all post-college okay, now. Yeah. Okay. So, I've graduated... How are you supporting yourself? But through what work work, in law working firm. in law firms, okay. right? And I'm sort of just exploring law, trying to figure out, make yeah, sure yeah. that it's the right road and so forth. And I'm working in law firms and just looking at the hours that these attorneys work. And I'm just like, you know, you have to really either love the law or love yeah. money to, to work like that. You're talking you know? to a former lawyer right now. Yeah, so. I must, yeah, yeah. So, so you know. <laughs> I know. And I was just like, I don't love the law in particular. And I'm, I want to make money, but... If I'm going to work these hours, I'd rather make money at something that I love. Yeah. So after you know a few years of that, um, decided law school is not for me. So now what? And I was still pursuing music, and I was looking for that job, you know, that waiter actor job that allows you to go on the auditions, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So I decided to do substitute teaching because I felt like I'd worked with youth before, and I told myself, do not become a full time teacher. I vowed to myself because I said, you are good at it. You will love it, but it's not ultimately what you want to do. Hmm. And after about eight months of subbing, I got offered a full-time position, and I sat and pondered with my then-manager you know, what's the benefit and should we do it? And we were like, oh, yeah, you'll have all this off-track time because we were a year-round school. So it was like, you know, four months off and four months on, two months off. Yeah. You'll have these two months. You can, you know, make music, travel. You know, you'll have early days off. It was it was a beautiful plan that was just ridiculous because <laughs> you don't have any off time as a teacher. Right, beautiful on paper. That's right. <laughs> and so I took the job. And by the time you come home as a teacher, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, like you're exhausted, yeah. you know, then and all you're doing, you're grading papers at night and by the time your off-track time comes, you're burnt out. And so it it was a failed plan for my music, but it was a great plan for, you know, being able to impact the world in the classroom. Yeah. What what was the age of the kids you were working Fifth with? grade. Ah, wow. Which yeah. is like a pretty cool age. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. And it was exhausting. And I had I was the only man on the fifth grade floor, so a lot of the ladies gave me all the I need a father figure boys, you know, yeah. and so I spent a lot of time classroom management and really, you know, mentoring as well. And so it was a challenge. But I also knew that they really needed my 110 percent. And I could not give that to them if I was out pursuing entertainment at night. Yeah. And so after about four years, I 
been building my name. I mean, teaching is the kind of job that you can't just say, I think I want to quit in September. I'm not quite ready. I'll quit in December. Like you have to finish that year, you know? So every year I couldn't quite see how I was going to make money at my art, which initially was hip hop and music. And then sometimes at some point during those four years, it became poetry. So then it was like, well, now what do I do with this? So I was looking at a handful of the folks that were around me, a few of the poets out there, Talam AC, you know, Shihan, Jaha, you know, some of my peers that were just making a living. And I found myself going, okay, my name is building up on the scene quickly. I was getting some accolades. I'd won, you know, the National Poetry Slam Championship. My name was beginning to precede me. If I'm going to do it, this is the time. So then I felt like all of the strategy, all of the pieces had been put in place and, you know, like every entrepreneur knows, the last piece is just the hold your nose, close your eyes and jump. You yeah. know what I mean? There is no perfect time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like, I, you know, I pinched my nose and, and took a breath and quit my job as a, as a teacher. And I always tell the story of three, four days later after the last day as a teacher, the uh pivotal point that sort of convinced me, okay, it's time to quit was I decided to release my first CD. So I took all my tax money in February upgraded my studio, started recording my new double CD from like February to June and then quit. And then three days, three, four days later, I did like a CD release show at a, at a club called Fly Poet. Shout out to Fly Poet, one of the best venues in LA if anybody's out there, uh, monthly venue. And so I was doing a CD release show there. CD wasn't out that day. I was freaking out. Distributor called me like, you know, that afternoon was like, okay, it's finally out of print. Come down and get it. I shot down that evening. I shot back to Santa Monica to the club, you know, got there 20 minutes before I was supposed to go on. John Hensley, the producer's like, you know, where you been? I'm freaking out like you're on in 20 minutes. I'm pacing back and forth backstage. I go on stage. I do one of the best sets of my career at that time. I step out on the street afterwards and surrounded by the crowd on the street and I make my rent in CD sales that night. And I remember when the crowd dispersed and I was just standing on the streets of Santa Monica by myself. And I remember looking up the sky and just going, oh, man, I could do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I could do this. And literally from that moment, it was like the next day I took off to D.C. I did a, a week long tour in D.C., came home with a wad of cash. Three weeks later, did a week long tour in, of Atlanta, came home with a wad of cash. Three weeks later, won the National Poetry Slam Championship, making me the sort of number one poet in the in the country. Three weeks later, joined the National Poetry Tour, traveling the route of the Underground Railroad, celebrating fallen firefighters from 9-11, and you know, on and on and on and on, and another tour, another national championship. And I, I, I always felt like it was almost like God saying, what took you so long? Mm-hmm. You know, like I've been holding all these blessings for you and just waiting for you to come get my arms have been heavy and waiting for you to come grab this here. Thank you. Take this, you know. So literally it hasn't it hasn't stopped since. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And, and it, it's so interesting too, right? Because so often, you know, people just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for yeah. all the stars to align. That's right. Um, and I never realizing that, like you said, you're the final star, you know? So if you're waiting for that last one to set up, but it's hard because that, cause that, that moment is about faith. Yeah. There is never proof that That's it's right. going to work ever. <laughs> and right. people are waiting for proof. That's They're waiting right. for a sign from God, but right. your, your action is the sign. That's right. And it may not work. That's right. You know, but you will never know until like you're the, that final star just steps out and says, you know, like... I'm hoping and I'm I'm going to do I'm I'm going to do everything I can. And when you think about 
you know, just the, the beauty of the universe, if you go back to the beginning of my story, what was the name of my record label? Blind Faith Records. Mm. <laughs> a little prophetic. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, sometimes it's in you and you don't even see it yet, you know? Yeah, right. Looking from signs from, from your own past. That's um, right. So you go from there. Actually, there's, there's a question that popped into my mind that I want to circle back to, and then we'll kind of like zip back up to, to like where we are in the story. But when you were teaching, like when you're in the, in the room as a teacher with those fifth graders, is any of this stuff filtering through to how to the classroom with them? Yeah. So yes and no. Uh, you know, on the yes side, I was doing music production with them. I was doing contests. I had some of my kids competing in oratory contests and theatrical contests, and some of them got to like the you know the regional you know ranking place mm-hmm. and so forth. And so there was always a creative element in my classroom you know um they you know (laughs) i remember when i first did hbo deaf poetry and you know i did a piece that was a satire on hip-hop and so it was very much filled with language and adult concepts right and uh when i flew back home and came to the class they were like oh mr andrews (laughs) we saw you on tv you was cussing I was like, That's what awesome. the hell are y'all doing up? That, that poetry comes on at like midnight. Y'all supposed to be in bed. <laughs> so they were, you know, they were very proud of me. Yeah. You know, that they were excited when I was shooting my music videos and I would show them like, it, we shared that experience, absolutely. And I nurtured that in them. Um, on the no side, I was a new teacher. Mm. You know what I mean? And when you're a new teacher, yeah. I mean, you're thrown into the lion's den, you know? So, and I was a new teacher in inner city, South Central, Los Angeles, you know, charter school, low income, kids being brought into my classroom by the cops after pulling a knife on their brother type of, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was, you got to be in this. It's, this is purpose work, you know? So there was just me trying to keep up. There was just me trying to keep up with classroom management and the curriculum and learn how to be a better teacher. You know, that's one of the the only regrets that I have about leaving is I left before I was the Jordan of teachers. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I, I wish I had left on top, but I also knew that I couldn't serve the kids the way that I wanted to if I was pursuing something else. And so I felt like, let me go pursue this and if it doesn't work out, then I'll come back and I'll I'll be able to be in teaching with my with my my soul clear in a sense, you know, of any other distractions yeah. and just focused on the kids. So yeah, that absolutely was an aspect of it, you know, that I brought in. And and you know, I, I still to this day I'll get kids that come up to me and are just like, yo, you're one of the best teachers. And I always say the two words that make me feel oldest when I hear them on the street are Mr. Andrews, <laughs> and I turn around like one of my kids is like taking my tickets at the movies or something, you know. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So what's going on in your personal life at like at this time? Because you're a family man from what I know now. I am a family man and looking to be, you know, working on trying to be even more of a family man. So um, got married about three years ago and... Uh, wife and I are actually trying to start a family now, mm-hmm. literally. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm laughing. I was just having a meeting with some friends yesterday and was just saying, like, we're in that m- trying to get my travel calendar and her fertility calendar to play nice, <laughs> you know. But really also looking at my business and looking at my career path and just saying, how do I structure this in advance so that 
I'm able to be not only the kind of artist that I want to be, which I've taken control over, and the kind of entrepreneur that I want to be, which I've taken control of, but also the kind of father and husband that I want to be, you know, and, and no reason why I can't take control of that and not just play victim to circumstance like, oh, I have to be on the road because that's where my money is. You know, no, I'm looking ahead now and sort of diversifying my revenue streams, changing my business model a bit. I actually just launched my uh, my first speaker training program last year hmm. and that is called Stage Might. I'm really proud of it. It's basically looking at my career and saying, I have a successful speaking career, but I was never trained as a speaker. I was trained as a performer. And I took all of that performance experience and I applied it to business stages and that's what allows me to stand out on business stages. So as I look at executives and, and leaders that always look at me and go, man, I wish I could do that. And at first there was that disconnect. How can I create some of those connections by just getting them to train outside of how they think a speaker is supposed to be and, and learn the techniques of a dancer if you wanna be more graceful or an actor if you wanna be more authentic or an improv artist if you wanna learn how to control a room better. And so it's having, it's having some great success. I haven't even formally launched it. It's sort of been, been in beta soft launch, but folks are having some great success with it. So I'm able to serve my community in some new ways while also setting up a model for me to work from home a bit more when I need to. Yeah, and, you know? and what's interesting too is that in a way, it's like you're circling back to being the Michael Jordan of teaching. That's right, that's right. You know, but now you're like, you're doing it from a different place in a different way. Different um, classroom, absolutely. Yeah. Let's fill in the story a little bit because, yeah. you know, we talked about you're really starting to explode on the spoken word scene. Mm -hmm. But what you were just saying now is, you know, you're in front of big crowds and big corporations. So how do you make the shift from sort of like the spoken world slash entertainment world, you know, so, you know, they're national champion in Poetry Slam, mm -hmm. to stepping onto stages where you've got, you know, global corporations wanting you to be there. And also, why do they want you to be there? Yeah. Yeah. So the process really came when, or, or began this, this chapter of that process began when, Always being part entrepreneur and part artist, the, the entrepreneur, the same entrepreneur that started, you know, Blind Faith Records when I heard the no's from the record labels and, you know, created Stage Might, looking ahead to my future. At that point, it was, okay, I've fallen in love with this art form, but I also, I really think that it should be able to do more in the world than it than it does, you know? I don't understand why it's just so relegated to open mics on, you know, a Tuesday or a Thursday night. I felt like it had an incredible power to communicate powerful messages. Um, I mean, it's the oral tradition. It's the oldest tradition. When you bring people to some of the best, I mean, you know, here in New York, you got New Eureka. In L.A., we got the Poetry Lounge and Fly Poet. These cities have some of these, like, iconic spoken word venues. And when you bring a guest to them, it's like their whole world changes. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it becomes their church. Like, this has always been here. And I was like, why can't we give the world that experience? And so I got really excited and driven by the mission to create a more viable, a more commercially viable industry for spoken word in mainstream media that allow poets to make a purposeful and profitable living off their art. And as I began to look at how to do that, the first stop for me was the business world. So I started to hit a few business stages. Uh, Nike was actually my first client. And 
I began to do work with Nike where I was helping to communicate messages, but it was still sort of being positioned and seen as the entertainment value. It was like I'd write an entertaining basketball poem or something, you know? Mm. And it wasn't until I started going to business conferences and just constantly seeing this divide between, you know, I would eventually start to hit some business stages and start to bring some more of my business value, my ability to, to not just have an entertaining basketball poem, but then to communicate business strategy at the analyst meeting or the senior leadership meeting and have the response from the client be, wow, you captured and communicated our message more powerully than half of our speakers and, and the, or more powerfully than we were able to over the course of that entire day. And mm-hmm. you did it in 10 minutes or whatever. And that's when I, I was like, yeah, because this art form does that, you know? And so I became this huge advocate for the art form and everything that I was doing was driven by you guys need spoken word and you don't know it. Part of the reason you don't know it is because we're constantly battling these preconceived notions and this history of what people think when they hear poetry. And everybody's got one. And they think, you know, beat poets from the 60s or whatever with the bass and the beret and the, you know, Mike Myers doing Harry it, you know. <laughs> and they think, you know, revolutionary poets only. Or they think slam poets yelling at them about something for three minutes. Or they think literary poets that are you know, doing some dense description of a daffodil or something that that's not accessible. So by the time I hit the stage and people hear poetry, they're going, they, they think bathroom break. They right, think, like their defenses are up. That's right. They the think this is yeah. time to check Facebook. Like, yeah. I don't want to be here, you know. I knew that I could give them a different user experience. And so that was that became my challenge that became what i call my joyful challenge you know um the sort of uphill battle every day but the joy of watching that conversion mm. and then when i would go to these business conferences i would see this trend of this succession of speakers delivering the business content followed by a performer that was meant to sort of lift the spirits right. and you know get the hearts open hearts open for what though to ready you to receive the information from the next succession of speakers and that's when i sort of had the pivotal moment of why is art the break from the content and not the vehicle for the content. And that was the pivotal question that really allowed me to go, okay, so what I want to do now is to move spoken word poetry to another level by creating a new category of speaking. And I call it poetic voice. And so poetic voice is the seamless integration of inspirational speaking and spoken word poetry. And so, and I, and I emphasize seamless because a lot of times you have a poet that's talking um, or, you know, and then they'll deliver a poem. If, if, if it's a poem doing a poet doing a speech, they yeah. may deliver a poem. You'll applaud. They'll talk. They'll tell some stories. They'll set up the next poem. They'll deliver that piece. You'll applaud. And it becomes sort of a glorified set. And what I wanted to do was create a seamless experience where you don't know when the strategic storytelling ends and the speaking begins and the theater ends and mm. the comedy begins. So it creates this constant leaning forward effect, you know, where just when I think I'm ready to tune out, oh, crap, he's rhyming. Oh, what's happening? And it leaves you with that impact of having chills like you talked about earlier, right? Yeah. So that became my mission, create poetic voice and put that language in the speaking industry's mouth. And that was sort of a pivotal moment where then the biggest brands in the world began to take note because they began to see we get in our opening presenter or our closing presenter or our keynote in the middle of the day, we get the business value, you know, of people walking away. Our nurses at our at our healthcare conferences are taking his words and putting them up on their cubicles mm-hmm. as their anthems. We get our senior leaders that are that are um 
creating a video saying we need to have this message sent to our team and they create it. You know, Apple creates a video of my work that makes me like a celebrity at the at the at the genius bar when I walk in to get my laptop repaired because everyone is like your message is what has me in this job still. I was prepared to quit, but because of the way that you framed what we're doing and what we're a part of, I'm staying here. You know, so they begin to see the ROI of it. Yeah. And at the same time, they were like, and you had everyone dancing in the aisles. You had everyone singing the message. You delivered the power. You delivered the power of art. And we didn't have to choose anymore. We got both. And so that's why. So when you lay it out like this, I'm like, well, duh. I mean, it sounds just like, of course, you know, it's, just, it's like the perfect blend of everything. But that's because it's now. That's right. You know, that's because you've been out there at, you know, like singing the gospel or speaking the gospel around this and establishing like a a strong presence and a brand and an awareness around what you're doing. But when you have that first conversation, you know, and you're you're trying to convince somebody that they should shell out real money and set aside, you know, like limited stage time, often for like thousands of people that have traveled around the world to be in this one place. What's that first conversation like? <laughs> I, you know, we don't have to go into the past. I'm having that conversation every day. Like, even though it's duh, I mean, you know, I mean, that's just the nature of innovation. You know, yeah. it's, it's it, of course, the iPhone now. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> but, and yet you're still, if you're, if you, until the world on a mass level gets it, understands it, embraces it and adopts it. You know, it's still that uphill battle. And and also, my work is so experiential. So yeah. despite the fact that I have a platinum, you know, resume, and despite the fact I have video and all of that, there's still that person whose job is on the line if they don't yeah. create an incredible experience at this event. And so I always joke about how I'm dealing with someone who they're visionary enough to get it themselves, and they go, wow, I'm looking for some something different. We want, you know, we can't talk about change or or uh, innovation or you know any of the, the topics that we're dealing with looking forward into the future to our customers at this event if we're not walking it ourselves. Mm. So Seiku helps us to walk the talk because if we start the conference or if we have in the conference, wherever it is, some experience that is so mind-blowingly innovative and experiential and, and next level for them, it says, we're doing this. We're taking the risks. You take them with us. We're this kind of company. You, this is where you want to be. You know? So I become the embodiment of their message, but it's still a risk. So I have, always have one person that's like, they're the visionary. They're turning to their bosses and, yeah. and their customers <laughs> and saying, don't worry. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be amazing. He's going to be awesome. Stop. Relax. Chill. And then they're turning to me and going, please be awesome. <laughs> please be amazing. Right. Well, because I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm, you know, in and out of the speaking world, it, you know, too, and it's certainly not no, nowhere near the level as you, but, uh, you know, one of the things I learned really early on, you know, there's a spoken driver, which is, you know, we want somebody to come in and just do, you know, really something great, get our message, you know, light people up or teach them whatever it is. But then there's like the unspoken driver, which is the person who's hiring you. They're yeah. like their biggest, you know, unspoken concern is if you mess up, they don't want to look like they messed up. That's right. You know, so you like your their biggest concern is please God be good right. because it's going to reflect really it's badly reflect on me. Them. That's right. That's where the business part comes in. Yeah. You know, that's where that's where the businessman in me. You know, and 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 they're not used to that. To be honest, I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm working against those preconceived notions of poets, poets that screwed them, poets that you know were that were. Uh, only wanted to deliver their art the way that they wanted to deliver it, and they were very precious with precious with it. Poets who didn't understand how to nurture those nurture those business relationships, and that's where I say that's why I had to define poetic voice as something else because I wanted them to understand when you book a poetic voice, 
you're booking someone who not only is able to deliver that message, but like the last client that I worked with, I was working with that intermediary company between them, the production team, and the client. And the client was all over the place. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They kept changing. And the, the production company kept coming to me, sort of apologizing, trying to buffer me, trying to insulate me from it. And I was like, no, you, you don't understand how I work. We collectively are all invested in making this right. So if you're staying there till midnight, I'm staying there till midnight. And if you until the until the client walks away saying we're thrilled, I'm right beside you all making sure and invested in this being right. But at the same time, you also have to not buffer me so much that you interfere with my process because you think that you're dealing with talent. You're not just dealing with talent. You're dealing with a speaker. You're dealing with a businessman. You're dealing with an executive and a leader and a CEO of a company. So. Bring us all to the table. We'll figure out how to make it, you know, amazing for your client, and we'll celebrate that. But let's let's handle it correctly, you know. And that was a big part of breaking some of the conce- the preconceived notions of yeah. here's how you deal with talent and artists that can't handle the business side. That's not this. Yeah, I mean, you're playing so many different roles. Um, yeah. So there's an interesting tension there, or just an interesting business invitation for you to sort of like dance and build that and sort of shift expectations on the side of the clients and your agencies or whoever might represent you. I'm also curious about the world that you've come out of. Because mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges for quote artists, you know, especially artists who sort of like, you know, gain some sort of acclaim in a particular artistic community is that the moment they become financially successful or the moment they start to, in some way, take their art form and blend it with mm-hmm. some sort of commercial element, the community they come out of starts to label them. You know, like you're a sellout. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not the same person you were before. Has that been at all a part of your experience? Is it something that you think about or is it just a non-issue with sort of like... <laughs> uh, you know... I'm sure people are talking. Yeah. I don't, you know, I keep it moving. <laughs> I keep it moving. I don't, I mean, you know, yeah, There. I, I, I say that, you know, jokingly, but it really is the truth. I, I don't, I'm driven by this and I believe in this and I maintain a high level of integrity with it. You know, it's not, I don't sell out the art form. In fact, the opposite, you know, a lot of times I'm the one fighting for, I believe that good spoken word by definition should live strong on the page and come to life on the stage. And so I'm hard on poets. It's hard to impress me. I believe there's a lot of garbage out there, you know, in spoken word, it's almost like the, the, the literary poet's argument against spoken word and slam sometimes is that it just dumps it down and you, you lose all the poetic technique and so forth. And the slam spoken word argument against literary poets is, yeah, but it's so inaccessible because you're so dense and, and no one can understand it. And I believe the best spoken word poetry lives in that middle. It's accessible enough for you to get it and, and have a wow experience the first time you hear it, but it's poetic enough that it it does. It should make you want to hear it again. And you, every time you hear it, that fifth and tenth time, you should be peeling away layers of meaning that you didn't catch the first time. So I'm very strict on making that process happen and not just turning it into prose for, and calling the poetry for the sake of, you know, oh, somebody's giving me a check. But at the same time, I, I do really love the conversion factor. I love watching someone start off. It's like the slam poet in me, I guess. You know, that loves sort of the guy at the bar who you, who's ready to yeah. give you a two until you wow them, you know, and you get a 10. Like, I love watching those executives or those, you know, business audiences like sit there and go, 
all right, I'm going to lean back and check my texts. And then, you know, you just see them putting the phone down. You see the eyes getting wider. And I'm looking at this person and going, okay, great. I got you over here. I got you. You just, light bulb just went off on you. You're on the fence. Okay, you're hopeless. I'm not worried about you. You know what I mean? <laughs> Coming back to you too. I love like watching one by one the audience just light up and, and, and turn into this bonfire. So that is our art form, you know? And I think there's a respect that I have on the scene. I, I'm still, to be honest, I'm so disconnected from the poetry scene, the traditional poetry scene sometimes that I'm honored when I hear that my name still has merit there, you know? Mm-hmm. Last time I came to New York, I showed up to a venue and uh, I, I always, I, I try to maintain humility everywhere I go. So I never walk in like, I'm here, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I uh, I walked in and I, you know, it was dark and I, the host came by and I was like, hey, is there any, you know, is there any... um room on the list can I can I sign up and he was like no nah, man the list is, is is you know is full and he kind of just walked on and then afterwards he came up to me when he was like dude what the hell is wrong with you you don't walk into my venue and, and ask if you can get on the list you walk into my venue and say I'm Seku put me on the damn list <laughs> you know I didn't even realize it was you you know so when those experiences happen it's, it's gratifying to know that my name still carries some respect in this art form that I came from and that I maintain a connection to so that I don't lose myself in this business world. But at the same time, I also want to be known for providing more opportunities for poets to have something new to do when they grow up. Mm. And so take me more into that. Into that that mission. Yeah. So, you know, a big part of that is why I wanted to create Poetic Voice as a separate speaking category so that I can begin to, number one, create and train. I'm just starting to work with some other poetic voices now, training them in this process, beginning to bring them into public-facing work. Part of the reason why I created the Stage Might model was, or, or why I created the Stage Might program was not so much because I was dying to become a speaker trainer, but because, number one, it was a new way to serve my community and not just hold what I know, you know, and be able to share that. Making people more powerful storytellers is a great part of my mission. But number two, it also helped me to sort of understand how to dissect and codify my process. Because if you imagine, it's a very creative process and it feels like magic. So I don't understand how it happens. So then when the next person is saying, hey, I want to get next to you and learn from you and do what you do. And I'm going, I want you to, too. And I don't know how I do what I do. (laughs) You know, so I started to realize if I'm going to pass the baton, if I'm going to start sharing this, I've got to dissect that stage might allow me to sort of get back into teacher mode take something that I that I wasn't so close to, which is just how do you deliver work? Yeah. Not poetic work, just any work. And codify that process. So once I did that and created that model, now I'm starting to understand better when I'm actually in the process of creating a, a piece, how it is that I do it so that I can take and um, uh, train someone else in it and be able to a- allow them to, number one, you know, experience sort of a next level of spoken word and eat off of it. Yeah. You know? How how hard has it been for you to get into that mindset where you're like deconstructing your own process? Oh my sharing? god, it's been excruciating. Because I know for me, it's been it's been brutal. I mean, yeah. I, I do that. And we create programs and all sorts of stuff like this. And like the same thing, I I see the value, you know, and it, on so many different levels. But it's that's it's just not my my orientation, right? 
to, you know, to spend a lot of time on the process side like that. Um, and the creative process is consuming. Yeah. So in the same way that when you are in the studio, when you're in the writing lab, when you're in the, you know, innovation lab, whatever it is that you're doing that's creative, it can be consuming and you look up and you haven't slept, you yeah. haven't eaten, you haven't, you know, spent time with your family. So in the same way, you're not thinking oh, I just had a brilliant thought. Let me stop that brilliance for a moment, write down how I reached that brilliance, and right. then go back. You know, the brilliance is like, hey, listen, you either take me right now or you lose me, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it really is it really is tough, but it's exciting to start to get closer to that process now because it's, it's taking this from something that is just connected to me and now preparing it to be something that's, you know, more of an industry. So I, I want to go even like one step deeper into that because I'm, yeah. I'm really curious about this. And I can ask you a really specific question around it. Okay. So when you're deconstructing your process, do you do what you just said? Where sort of like, I'm doing this and then I stop taking it. Or do you sort of like almost record what you're doing or even just like, you know, like film or record or look at what you're doing on stage and then sort of like, you know, roll tape and then observe yourself and like hit pause and take notes on the process and observe a little more and hit pause and take notes on the process. Or is it something totally different? Well, Again, separating content from delivery. Yeah. Delivery, you know, was much more stage might. So that was a lot more sort of looking at tape, looking at the recordings, recording, you know, those kinds of things and being able to say, here's, here are the patterns that I'm right. seeing emerge, right? But for content, it's all internal. It's all in my brain. So mm. there's nothing to record. Yeah, there's nothing you know? to film there. Right. So it really becomes trying to remind myself that when I do see the pattern, of something that I typically do every time I'm writing, stop and at least write a one-word note yeah. that reminds me later of what that was, because I won't remember. But I, but if I just have that, you know, that note to jar my memory, then the second part of that process is dedicate some time to saying, okay, now this is not about writing. This is about identifying how you write. So I'm going to set today is not about you know it's not my Friday writing day. It's my Friday uh, curriculum day. You know, and then I go back to those notes and say, oh, each time you do this, you do this. OK, start to turn those into sentences, into paragraphs, into right. curriculum, you know. So it's like you'll while you're just doing your own like when you're in your own creative process, you'll you'll stop long enough just to jot down something that mm -hmm. becomes a trigger. Mm hmm. But not long enough so it actually pulls to you pull out, of the out of the flow of, right. of your own process. That's so right. you can like stay in it, knowing that you're going to go back to that list of like really short like words that are triggers. Yep. And when you see the word or the phrase or whatever it is, that'll be enough for you to then say, okay, I, it's, I'm remembering what that was about now. Now, like this is the day where I'm going to flesh that out and detail it. That's exactly it. I love that. I love that. That's exactly um, it. That's a great way to go about it. Yeah. So as we sit here today, I mean, you're hanging out in New York because you were here doing a gig. And you're traveling around the world, you speak like crazy, you're building training programs to help people. Uh, for a second, I was about to, you know, say, become Seiku. But, um, <laughs> but, but that's not right. No. So, and, but I think some people may kind of like feel that. So yeah. why would I say that's not right? Like, let's talk, let's talk about this a little because, bit. Because, you know, so there's a, there's a phrase I use a lot when I, was, when I describe stage might. And it's saying that when, I, when people would first ask, you know, how do you do that? I wish I could do that. And I would sort of dismiss it like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just my magic. It's just my gift. It's just my genius, you know. And then I started to realize that there's a point at which the magic ends and the mastery begins. And the mastery is teachable. And so that's that process of sort of dissecting and deconstructing what my mastery is, right, that helps bring out my magic. Well, 
if you take that process, it's not going to bring out my magic in you. It's going to bring out your magic. Right. right. And so once I begin to realize that, then it's like, no, it's not about, then it became clear that I have to communicate to others. It's not about trying to make you seiku. It's also for stage mind. It's not even about trying to make you a performer, right? It's saying, what can you learn from performers that make you a better author or that's on your book tour or or an executive that's that's trying to inspire your team around your message, or a mom who wants to kill it at the PTA meeting. You know, like whatever it is that you're invested in, we're all storytellers, we're all speakers, we all have some stage, you know, and you wanna be effective on that stage. And public speaking is one of people's biggest fears. So that's why I call the program Stage Might. It's stage fright to stage might, you know, and really just looking at not only can we eliminate the stage fright, but how can we get you to be mightier than your mistakes? A lot of speaker training programs will have you do things like count your, you know, count your ums. You know, how many times did you say um? You said um 37 times. Well, I want you to be bigger than your ums. And that's good. I want you to count your ums. I want you to be aware of them. Don't let them be a detriment. But I also want you to be bigger than the ones that you still say. I probably said um a bunch of times in this interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I have my own little uh, ticks and bad habits when I'm on a stage. But I want the culminating effect to be mightier than any of those mistakes. And that's, to me, how rock stars take a stage. You know, when Beyonce's heel breaks and she falls on the stage, like record sales don't dip. You know what I mean? Like she's a rock star and she recovers from it masterfully. How can you do that and be that rock star in any stage that you touch, formal, business, or or informal or otherwise? And so for me, a big part of it was just understanding the difference between the genius gift magic part of it for me and the part that is trainable and teachable. And that's what we have to share mm-hmm. to others in the world, you know, is our own individual magic. But if you don't know how to bring out your magic, you know, I always say a great story. Everybody has a great story, but a great story depends on your ability to tell it greatly. So if you can't communicate the great story greatly, then it's lost. And The moment that I can help you to communicate your great story, your great mission, what you do, your cause, how you're serving your community, your customers, your your cause, whatever it is, and to help you find your most powerful voice, then your great story gets shared with others and it becomes that much more impactful in the world. And that's not about being me. Yeah. It's not about mimicry. It's about being being you. That's right. About being Being the most powerful you. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things. Like somebody looks at you on stage and be like, oh, I, I could never, I can never do that. I can never be him. Like right. look at him on stage. And the point is not to be you. The point is to take whatever is like, and I love the way you say it. Like there's, you know, there's part that's just the magic, which is Seiku, but there's also part, which is process, you know? And it's like, if yep. you can, if you can discover a process that allows everybody to identify the part of themselves, that's magic. And then, unfold that in a way that makes a difference yeah that's pretty awesome yeah it is it is it's exciting it's a a new joy for me that i didn't have i guess you know like you said it's sort of a return to the classroom so i had it with fifth graders i haven't had it for several years and now i'm beginning to have it with adults and you know even teenagers and other folks that i'm just working with that are just 
unlocking something in yeah. them and going, wow, I, I knew this was there and I knew I could do that, but I thought I had to do it this way. I thought this is what a speaker was. I, they had a very small, rigid box and just getting them to learn from an actor or pull out an improv technique or write their speech like a songwriter and not a speechwriter is just unlocking them in ways that they're like, this is cool. Mm, I love that, especially because as an adult, I mean, when, you, when you're working in the classroom with kids, with fifth graders, there's sort of like, you know, there's a lens of possibility that exists at that age yeah. where by the time you hit adulthood, yeah. for so many people, we've lost that, yeah. you know, and, and it's kind of like, so if in a way, you know, the work that you're doing returning to teaching can reconnect people with that possibility and say, oh, wait, it's, I've, I've set it aside maybe for decades, but it's not actually gone. It's just kind of like dusted. Yeah. And we're going to dust That's that sucker right. off. That's right. We got to throw some polish on that, baby. There's, I mean, there's a, there's, it's almost like a, you know, there's like a social impact to mm-hmm. that, too. It's an individual impact, but, you know, you start to do that enough. It's your ripple effect. And then yeah. you think about, you know, listen, I, there's a reason why I pushed my voice into healthcare a lot. Probably, you know, close to half of my um, clients are healthcare clients. And, you know, when I'm inspiring folks in a particular sport or, you know, whatever, like it's something that's random, um, it's, it's great because it's people's individual um, purpose. It's what they do. It's the impact that they're making on the world. But when I'm working with healthcare providers, you know, I always say like nurses, one of my favorite audiences. Uh, audiences, because not only are they just electric, they're the they're the feet on the ground that know how to be real human beings. So they come to a room and they're vocal and they're mm-hmm. electric, and we have a great time. But also, like you know, when care providers are inspired by my work, I know that the ripple effect of my work is having major impact on this world. You know, that really makes me proud. And I, you know, I just had. Um, I just spoke for one of the largest, no, for the largest uh, healthcare system in South Carolina and inspiring them to sort of the theme was ignite. And, you know, I had everybody calling each other sparkies and we're going to light <laughs> each other up and, and ignite this passion in us to basically create world class quality healthcare and serve our community better. And it just so happens that there is a poetry fan of mine, a longtime poetry fan um, who is in that healthcare system, has been having some heart problems. He's been a fan of mine for years that Facebooks me every once in a while and tells me what I'm, what an inspiration I am to him. And for him to hit me up and be like, dude, like my care providers are coming to me going, I know you do poetry. We just had this poet <laughs> who just sparked us. And he's like, this whole place is lit up. And I'm feeling the difference of what you did. And I'm going, yeah, I love him too. You know what I mean? And that, like, to me is the convergence of both of these worlds. Yeah, I love know? that. I love that. And that, which is actually a perfect sort of like place to come full circle. So the name of this is Good Life Project. Yeah. So if I offer that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what comes up for you? What does it mean? To live a good life is to live in your purpose with passion with harmony and balance of all the things that are that that feed you and the ways that you feed the world, um, it is really, 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 really honing in on what makes you happy, what gives you the greatest joy, and making sure that you don't compromise or sacrifice that for what you're quote unquote supposed to be doing and the path that everyone lays out for before you. That you know, and it doesn't mean that you create your entire life around it, you know, like you don't necessarily have to go and become a full time poet because you love poetry, but you keep poetry in your life. 
You know, you keep those things in your life. You find ways to make them your hobbies. You find ways to balance them. You find ways to make sure that, you know, uh, one of my peers and, and, and mentors and colleagues, Lisa Nichols, always says you should be um, serving the world from your overflow. You know, so you fill your cup first and you fill it up so much that it overflows and then you serve the world from your overflow so that you're not sacrificing. Because if you're serving them from your half full cup or your quarter full cup because you're serving, 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 you're not serving them from your best place. You know, and so find I think that the best life that we have is when we can fill ourselves up with so much joy and happiness and purpose and passion that it becomes infectious and it overflows. And then we look up and go. I can serve others with this. Others want to drink this. They want to taste as well. That's the best life possible. Yeah, I love that. Can you take us out with a little bit of spoken word? For sure. For sure. Uh, let's see here. A little bit of spoken word. <laughs> <laughs> How much time you got? How much you want. I know you got a card to catch. So. You know, I can go for hours, homie. <laughs> um, I'll take you out with uh, one of my... One of my favorite pieces. I'm doing a lot of work right now to sort of return to a public facing um, platform. You know, so much of what I've done and built over the past several years has been internal to mm-hmm. companies, to organizations, nonprofits, leadership conferences. And now I'm kind of returning to that, you know, B2C world of just saying, you know, I've had fans that have been neglected for years. Like, when do I get to see you're in New York and you're at another event that's closed, you know? Um, and so uh, I got some really exciting stuff that's on the horizon. You know, I'm really working hard on doing a lot of things that are that are becoming the voice of organizations uh, public facing wise doing things that are that are on entertainment stages i have i have one big and can i show you can i share my my, my super big dream with yes, you yeah. so my super big dream right now is i want to be the first spoken word artist to perform on the grammy stage mm. and i'm working heavily i had a few meetings here in new york about that if anybody has any ideas any support <laughs> that you can help a brother out with holla Send at me away. yeah please because that's you know it's one of those things where i've always been excited about doing something that uh, that spoken word is not doing right now you know and that's just one of those stages me coming from a music background me having a powerful powerful new piece that celebrates the power of music across the board and then just me looking to where where are the places that i think spoken word needs to be that's one of them so i'm excited about that and i think that to get to those kind of big dreams and goals you've got to stay in touch with your awesomeosity as i call it mm-hmm. and so i'll share a little bit of uh one of the public facing awesome. pieces that i created last year this is the awesome anthem cool. and uh this is i'm gonna try to jump into an excerpt so because it's a long piece The moment I truly discovered the great I am is the same moment I discovered how truly great I am. And I am not perfect, but I'm perfect like I am. I'm not beautiful like I used to be. I'm beautiful like I am, like the scar where a breast once was, like survival where a death once was, like the better where a best once was, every gray hair a trophy, every wrinkle fold a story, every pound of fat a challenge, reminding me there is always something to pursue 
and always something to celebrate. That's why I never smile for no reason. That's a concept I don't believe in. You ain't never without a reason to show off your teeth a bit. Spread out your cheeks a bit. Let your gums breathe a bit. If you can learn to reach deep for it, you can take yourself a piece of bliss and make yourself a feast of it. Like when you go buy a smoothie. And they fill it too full, making more than your cup can hold. But instead of letting it spill all over, what do they do? What do they do? They give you a little extra cup. And you feel like you just won the smoothie lottery up in here. Awesome. Like that perfect day when the stretch limo driver picked me up from the five-star hotel to transport me to my first-class flight after my sold-out show. And curiously peering at me through the rearview mirror, he asked, What do you do for a living? And with a pocket full of sand and an air guitar in my hand, I replied, I am a full time poet. Now roll up the damn divider. Awesome. <laughs> Love it, man. Love it. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a fun piece, dude. Check it out. Awesomeanthem.com. And it really, and the only thing that I ask is that you share it with somebody that needs to hear those yeah. words, because that has been the biggest impact of that piece in my work is when somebody comes to me and says, yo, my depression clients are watching this and it's healing them. My five-year-old son was struggling with this. And he now says, you're awesome anthem every morning before he goes to school. Like, that's the joy of my life. That's the good life. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.